If we are in the movie Groundhog Day, in which every day seems like a repeat of the day before, what scene have we arrived at? We're way past the this is fun part. Are we in the depressing part where Bill Murray tries a hundred ways to kill himself? Are we in the altruistic part where he figures he'll do the best he can in a terrible situation? At Cleveland.com, we're at the part where it's time to record the show. This week in the CLE, the podcast discussion about the coronavirus, I'm Chris Quinn, editor at Cleveland.com with reporter Emily Banforth and editors Laura Johnston and Jane Cahoon. So which Bill Murray are we? Depressing suicidal Bill? Hopeful good detour Bill? Or Woodchuck kidnapper killer Bill? Um, I'm going to take this first. Uh, My fun fact for the day is that my first journalism job was in Woodstock, Illinois, where the movie was filmed. So every year they had this big festival in February and you kind of lived in the set. Um, And I've been thinking about that a lot lately. But uh, anyway, is there a point that Bill Murray wants to grab people and shake them? Because that's where I am at (laughs) with my kids right now. Well, yeah, that's when he gets in the face of the insurance guy. (laughs) Yeah, like, you know. He punches him in the face and knocks him down and then smiles. So that Laura's in the anti-insurance Bill Murray phase. That's right, where it's coming off the rails. Jane, Emily? I, I guess I'm in the semi, you know, groundhog hibernation phase, but, <laughs> you know, I have my dark moments, but mostly I'm just, I'm just keeping my head down and trying to be grateful for what I have and, you know, working each day and trying to get to the next one. And Emily, you probably have never seen the movie, right? So, <laughs> as, a, uh, as someone who has reported on Groundhog Day for this website a couple of years, no, I actually have never seen this movie at oh, all. You got to add that to Laverne and Shirley of things that you need to watch. Oh, yeah. It's, it's becoming no. a long list. No, no, no. The, the Groundhog Day, worth watching. Laverne and Shirley, not so much. All right. Let's, uh, let's, let's begin. Who has the power to decide when Ohio comes back to life after the coronavirus? Governor Mike DeWine or President Donald Trump? The president announced Monday that he's the guy in charge, but he's also said repeatedly that he's not and that it's up to the states to deal with COVID-19. He's literally been all over the map on this. At DeWine's briefing Monday, Jane Cahoon, our reporter Jeremy Pelzer asked the governor who's in charge here. Okay, so let me first just say that DeWine's been asked lots of times uh, about Trump, especially by the national media, be- because of the the marked contrast in the way they've they've handled this crisis, and and he's really mastered the art of the dodge here. You know, always being diplomatic and insisting that they have the same goals. So we kind of stopped asking him about that, but then. This was such a direct assault on his authority as governor by Trump. I mean, we just had to keep pressing him on it. So, I, I mean, he's the guy who has spent the last couple of months crafting his response to this, you know, exerting his authority with order after order after order to combat this virus. So anyway, let me get to the point. So what did he say? He wouldn't answer. He, he said, oh, I'm going to leave that to the lawyers. Uh, You know, every state is different and we work with the White House and I'm sure they're going to like our plan. But, you know, it is really pretty clear this is a state's rights issue. It's constitutional. Why won't DeWine just say, hey, look, I'm the one that issued the orders to shut down the state. So obviously I'm the guy with the power to lift those orders. The president really doesn't have a say. Well, I think he's shown here that he is a true loyal Republican. And 
as much as we have given him credit, which he deserves for basically handling this in an apolitical fashion, this was not one of those moments. I mean, can I just say, if this had been Barack Obama or another Democratic president so directly challenging his authority as governor, do you think he'd be saying, oh, well, let's leave it to the lawyers and and talking about pleasing the White House? I but, don't think so. I mean, all you have to do is look back to his tenure as attorney general when he challenged Obamacare. He was not shy about asserting the state's rights in, in that case. I, but, but there is. OK, I get it. He's playing politics. But there's also the divide between being the loyal Republican and and sticking up for his his gun, you know, sticking by his guns. Right. He's he's a tough guy. He he was attorney general for eight years. I just think it's odd he would buck the question and basically kind of put his manhood in check on this. He knows it's his decision. He's actually said it in previous briefings. He has said previously what conditions he will use to decide to lift the orders. He's he's already asserted that right. Um, and he said he's following the, the recommendations of scientists in making his decision, his <laughs> decision. Oh, well. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is Cleveland.com asking me to pay $10 a month to subscribe in the middle of a coronavirus crisis? Great question, right? And how can I ask anyone on this podcast team, Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnston, Emily Bamforth, to answer it when I'm the guy making the plea for the subscriptions? But I'll bet at least one of you has a question about this. Well, you know, Chris, I think people might be wondering, you know, since everything is on our site is free, what do people get for subscribing? You know, that's just it, Jane. We're asking people to voluntarily subscribe to as a show of support for our journalism. We're not closing off the site to anybody in the middle of a coronavirus crisis. I, that, I mean, that would be wrong in so many ways. But the coronavirus has hammered our revenue. And at the very time we're putting everything into it, all three of you are, our whole staff is. This is something readers thank us for every day. Our ability to pay for that work is pretty threatened. So the subscription is just a way people can show support for all that we're doing. Yeah, and you wrote a column explaining this yesterday. The story was trending pretty much all day. And I'm sure we are all wondering, what was the reaction you got? Well, the good reaction was we were pushing up on 400 subscriptions already, which is way beyond what we thought we would in the first 24 hours. What I did not expect and I was not prepared for was the onslaught of emails that I've received from people that want to talk about this. Um, it's, it's, it's just been overwhelming and I've been trying to respond to most of them. So, you know, people who are really ugly and nasty, there were a handful of those I don't get back to. Um, but so I, I, and I, and I keep trying to reconcile in my mind why that is, why, why do people want to have that conversation? And I, I think it comes down to, we are a part of so many different lives that when something is happening that affects us, they care. And so I have gotten, I mean, I think it's like 170 and they're still coming in. They're coming in while we're talking. Uh, emails from people that want to have a conversation about our conditions or they want to complain about our political leanings. And, uh, you know, a few people mentioned the layoffs at the plane dealer is a reason not to subscribe. Very few. But I pointed out to them that if they fear the loss of journalists in the city, then now is the time to provide that support so that we maintain the team we have producing all the coronavirus news. 
So I've, I ended up in a bunch of civil and very interesting conversations with people who clearly care. So how do people dis- uh, subscribe? Thanks for asking that, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> if people go to cleveland.com, there's a blue banner at the top of the page with a link. And we hope you'll considering consider subscribing so that we can continue things like this podcast and our text message coronavirus alerts and our bounty of content. Okay, enough of the sales pitch. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Will we finally find out which Ohio nursing homes have coronavirus cases and get an accounting of how many cases? The simple answer, yes. But getting to it was anything but simple, Jane Cahoon. How did this finally come about? Well, it came about on Monday when Governor DeWine announced a a, a change in course that um, he said Dr. Amy Acton, the state health director, was going to order all nursing homes to disclose cases of coronavirus within 24 hours. And the names of those nursing homes would be made public. They're, they're required to tell families and residents if a staff member or a resident has the virus. This is actually a big deal because the nursing homes have not been so forthcoming and they're hotbeds of the coronavirus. Our reporter, Adam Faris, uh, worked on this story about one of the nursing homes in Parma, which had a serious outbreak. And it took major sourcing to bro- put pressure on to get that information out. And people wanted to know, poor Miami County is walloped by coronavirus deaths, largely because of two nursing homes. Did DeWine say why he reversed course and took this step? Well, he said if he had a loved one in a nursing home or or some other long-term care facility that, that he would want to know. And he acknowledged that the public has a right to know this information. Man, I wish he'd bring that logic to a whole bunch of things. That if it were affecting me, I'd want to know. I mean, that that would get rid of all sorts of government secrecy. So how does this information get to the public? I hope we don't have to call the nursing homes ourselves. Uh, No, the Ohio Department of Health is supposed to publish it on their website. This is Laura Johnston. I just wanted to add in here that Amy Acton, the director of public or director of health for the state, was really adamant that this should not be like a shame list so that the state's going to publish all the tallies at each facility, but that we are supposed to reach out with support and love and help for these nursing homes, like those honk for hugs parades and not just be like, tisk tisk, I'm never sending my loved one there. So she's, she's worried about the stigma. Well, you know, that's a good point because just by their very definition, nursing homes are a lot of people who are vulnerable in close quarters. And so it's only natural that you would have outbreaks there and people should not read into that is that it's any failing of the nursing home. So I'm glad you brought that up. Score one for transparency. Now, if we could just get the county health boards to break down cases by municipality. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Can I spread coronavirus with my shoes? We love new coronavirus studies on This Week in the CLE, but Emily Banforth, I find this latest one unfulfilling. The upshot is that you can apparently spread some part of coronavirus with your shoes, but it might not mean anything. Who did this study and what did they look at and what did they find? Uh, If you find uh, this study a little unfulfilling, you might find uh, quite a few of early research on coronavirus slightly unfulfilling. I I took a little bit of a deeper dive into what these people were actually looking for. So this was a study at a Chinese hospital where researchers took uh, different samples from all over the hospital Um, including in the ICU and general wards. 
And so they drew a number of conclusions from that, though they did note uh, some of this in their limitations. They concluded that uh, shoes might be a vehicle for the virus and people should disinfect their shoes. And they concluded that uh, coronavirus might be able to travel in aerosols up to about 13 feet. Uh, But the microbiologist I talked to uh, saw the viral RNA part, which is basically what they collected with the samples, which are tiny little uh, fragments of the virus's genetic material, and said, no way, this is not conclusive. Because um, I think the best way to describe it is the way one of the microbiologists put it, which is fingerprints, uh, not the actual virus. So basically, if you look at spreading viral DNA around with your with your shoes. Apparently, we do that all the time, just with different viruses. Um, so this is a step in the right direction, but nothing conclusive yet. So, so let me get this straight. I mean, the meaningful part of this is that the tiny droplets can go more than six feet, which was a surprise. But what you're what you're saying is, is those pieces of RNA, they didn't test them to see if that was viable virus. It just it just might be pieces of it that wouldn't get you sick. Right. So it's it's kind of that fingerprint idea. In order to determine whether this virus could infect someone, they would need to take a sample, put it in with uh, live cells and see how the virus replicates and kills those cells. And that would be something that could give you a more conclusive observation. That is not as easy as just saying, hey, there's viral RNA here. And science is incremental. So this is kind of the quick and dirty method of figuring out whether or not this needs to be further investigated. Um, But my guess is that there will be the next step uh, coming pretty soon. The first blush when you first see the headlines on this study could scare you because because Mm -hmm. the the overarching theme is, wait, the droplets can go. 13 feet, but, but I guess it's easy to misinterpret studies like this unless you go into the fine print like you did. Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's something nobody needs to stand uh, 13 feet apart from each other at all times yet. Um, But again, something new with this virus comes up every single day. So as soon as this changes, of course, we'll have it for you. Yeah, I think you're working on a couple of new studies that uh, I sent your way this morning. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, at least it's not bad news, at least. Not like that thing we talked about last week where exercising outside suddenly seemed more risky. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why can't people from Pennsylvania buy booze in Ohio? Jane Cahoon, Mike DeWine made another strange announcement Monday. He halted the sale of liquor in six counties to anyone without an Ohio ID. How come? I have to say, I I didn't realize this was such a problem until Monday. Uh, Pennsylvania closed down their liquor stores last month, and I guess people from that state have started a flock across the border to Ohio liquor stores uh, to stock up. So the obvious concern is people coming in and possibly spreading the virus and creating a health hazard. So DeWine announced that liquor sales would be banned in six counties along the eastern border to Anyone who does not have a valid Ohio identification. I just wanted to ask, this is Laura Johnston. Couldn't you just drive one more county over, like go to Lake County and buy your alcohol? <laughs> I, I just, I don't get this. They're really county. determined, you know. I, I think it's just easiest to go right across the border to these counties. And, you know, driving through Ashtabula County is 
that's pretty could be a pretty long drive, you know. But they might really want their <laughs> Well, you know, some of the states that border Ohio are making really odd decisions. And I think we start to take for granted in Ohio that we're getting sanity from our leaders here. You know, Mike DeWine closed the schools because gathering of kids was a bad idea. He shut down the theaters for the same reason. If you come into Ohio from out of state, he wants you to quarantine for 14 days because he doesn't know what you have. But Pennsylvania and Michigan are doing things that make you just wonder. Pennsylvania stopped the sale of booze. Why on earth would they do that? Didn't Ohio alcohol sales go off the charts during the coronavirus? Yeah, I mean, well, what else is there to do during this <laughs> quarantine, right? Work. <laughs> but seriously, um, the liquor operation is very profitable for the state. It supports Jobs Ohio, the state's economic development nonprofit. So, so it's very important. And in Michigan, the governor ordered people not to go into the houses of others, not across town, not across the street. And then she outlawed the use of power boats. You can canoe, you can kayak, but nothing with a motor. How does your method of propulsion on a lake increase your coronavirus risk? Emily Banforth, you've been looking at Michigan's much higher infection rate. Any thoughts? Well, I think it's that idea of a, a powerboat is recreation or travel and uh, kayaking or canoeing is exercise. Uh, that's how I'd read into it. Um, but Michigan does have a lot of reasons to be concerned. I don't know so much about people powerboating on the lake. But they do have a much, much higher case rate, though that seems to be slowing down a little bit. It is quadruple uh, Ohio's at this point, which is probably why uh, Gretchen Whitmer is cracking down quite so much. Also, there was a lot of critique from people saying she didn't do enough. She didn't do it uh, early enough, that kind of thing. Um, So now she's probably trying to cover all of her bases and try and make this stop once and for all. I don't know about the power boats because you know what? I don't boat, but I have a um, thought on this. But wait, 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 but people who fish, you know, that's not recreation. They're getting fish to eat and they use motors on their boats, trolling motors as part of the, the way they fish. And she's basically said you can't do it. It's just weird. What's your thought, Laura? Well, maybe, you know, a kayak, you can only fit two people in a paddleboard one these big boats, it'd be really easy to put a whole bunch of people who are not related on a boat and get out in the middle of the lake where no one can see them. So there's maybe that's one of although, the thoughts. Although one of her regulations was that you can only have people in a boat who are uh, domiciled together. So right. she's actually regulated that. I guess Ohio does have some oddities, too. A guy who was in a turnpike rest area sent a note marveling at what is closed and open in the rest areas. And we talked about how food trucks are there. But the strangest one? The arcade games are still working. You're listening <laughs> to This Week in the CLE. What is Eaton Corporation's new product for helping me open doors without getting the coronavirus? Laura Johnson, I'm putting you on the spot. This one seems bogus to me. So what is it and why is it better than using my hands? So this is a four-inch touchless tool that resembles a plastic wrench with a finger hole in one end. The idea is that the device grabs door handles, pushes buttons, and twists faucets, so you don't have to touch any germy surfaces with your hands. All right. We had an entertaining conversation on Teams <laughs> about this yesterday because I don't get it. I, 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 what is, how is it safer for me to use a plastic thingy to touch the doorknob than using my hand when that thing is in my hand? 
So, okay, the virus doesn't get on my fingers. It gets on this plastic thing, which presumably is hanging around my neck from a lanyard, putting the virus all over my shirt. Or um, in your pockets, if you keep it on a keychain. I guess the thought is that you can sanitize it with cleaner. Then my keys get the the virus. I'm not lining up to buy one of these. I'm just saying the idea is that you can sanitize it with cleaner. And Eaton actually worked with university hospitals on this. And the devices have been distributed to doctors and nurses working in the front lines of the coronavirus. So the hospital sees some efforts. They think you might not have to replace your gloves quite as much. Um, if you're using this because you're not touching the surfaces w- directly with your gloves. So maybe maybe there's certain circumstances where it makes sense. I don't know. I can wash my hands. And, and you're saying, well, you can you can wash this thing. I look at this thing as a plastic thing covered with coronavirus that I'm walking around with. I, I'm just the whole thing throws me is why this is a better tool. I don't know. Maybe it'll go with your mask and it'll be the new accessory and you'll have it matching. I don't know. I mean, you could put a pocket in your mask so you get it up near your face. Can people can people buy this yet? No, they can't. They're working on it, but they've already named it the quote touchless tool. So they're they're gone. You got the catchy marketing ploy there. Couldn't I just snap off the hook of a plastic coat hanger and use that instead? <laughs> I am sure you could, Chris, but you also build your own boat. So I don't know that everybody else is going to do that. All right. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Will I have to wear a mask when I leave my home for the rest of the year? Now, that's a remarkable question to be asking. It's a sign of how far we've come since Emily Bamforth was writing stories in late January and early February with all sorts of health officials telling her that we don't need masks. Now, we not only are advised to wear them, we may be having them as fashion accessories for the rest of the year. Laura Johnston? Yeah, Ohio Department of Health Director Dr. Amy Acton mentioned this kind of casually during Monday's Statehouse news briefing. She was just like, yep, keep baking them. Don your mask, don your cape. We're going to keep wearing them. And then she just moved on. It's incredible to me that we're not only going to need a mask, we're going to need a whole bunch of masks. We're going to have to clean them and wear them every day. We're going to have perpetual mask face for having these things squashed up against our faces. I mean, is that, I mean, this is a pop culture change this is this is a big a big movement in in what this virus is doing to our society right yeah acton called the masks one more layer of swiss cheese to protect ourselves on top of staying six feet apart and everything else we're doing for social distancing we're all going to have to wear them until we get a vaccine apparently i maintain that we're going to see sports themed masks very soon i saw a tweet of a mom who had made matching masks for her daughter's adorable easter dresses One thing we all wonder about, though, is reopening about the restaurants. And you can't eat or drink with a mask on. You can't go all day without drinking if you're at work. So this is going to be really interesting. Um, Emily Bamforth actually wrote the story on this. So I'm sure she might have something to say. The um, we are coming back today, Jenko, and you have Seth Richardson doing a story that looks at the culture of the mask, how many we're going to need. What's the proper protocol when you get into your car at the end of the workday? Do you put it in a plastic bag to avoid contaminating yourself? The whole stylistic uh, part of it. We've also put a a call out on uh, our text message account from the newsroom asking people if they have questions about how this will work. But I mean, it's getting to the point where we're going to need a a drawer in our bureaus for the masks. How many masks do you all have? Emily Benforth, Jane Cahoon, Laura, what do you got? (laughs) I have one. I didn't make it, and I wore it for the first time to the grocery store yesterday and found myself fidgeting with it 
a whole lot. So it's going to definitely be a cultural switch for me. Touching the mask is you're not supposed to do that. But no. I, I think from what I've seen, they're so annoying that people keep adjusting them, probably getting the virus on the fingers, you know, so maybe they'll, we'll make a tool to adjust your mask. So you don't have to touch it with your fingers. <laughs> Jane and Laura, how many do you have? Well, well, first, can I say that my friend, Karen Farkas, who, uh, a retired Cleveland.com reporter who so graciously helped do our video on how to sew one. She's already made a couple of Cleveland Indians ones ah. for her husband. She, she put those up, I think. Um, no, she texted those to me. So I got a kick out of that, but I have four masks. Two of them are the no sew bandana type ones. I have one very nice homemade one that a friend gave me. And then I actually sewed one over the weekend myself, which is totally pitiful looking, but it is functional. Laura? I have two. Um, one, the one that I made and then the much nicer one that my mom made. But I'm with you, Chris and Emily. I find them hard to breathe through. And as soon as I got back in my car after like wearing it in Home Depot, I was like, put it in my purse. I was like, I'm in my car. I don't have to wear it. And so if we're going to have to wear these all day, like, I don't know how you, you breathe all day normally. We're going to get a lot stronger lungs. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is there any actual math or science behind the claim that releasing the number of coronavirus cases by zip code identifies the people who have it? This is another one of those claims that public health officials made, like that we shouldn't use masks, that I knew was bogus. Now we know for sure. Laura Johnston? Yeah. Reporter Robin Goyce talked to an expert and he basically said the short answer is no. Can't, you can't identify them. The thing that made even less sense to me is when, when they said the fewer the people that have it in a zip code, the higher the chances you'll identify them if the number is released. That just, I, I sat back and thought, okay, not the smartest guy in the world, but I want to understand the math behind that. Yeah, it's actually the opposite. Mathematically, if you increase the number of coronavirus cases, mathematically, you increase the chances of guessing that someone is a patient. It's like multiplying fractions, adding fractions, really, not multiplying them. So saying, um, so saying one person in 10 or one person or 10 in a zip code of 50,000 people has the coronavirus absolutely does not identify them. We know that correct. now from Robin Goy's story. So the public right. health officials lied again. You <laughs> well, know, maybe they didn't understand. I mean, I don't yeah, they were in our face about it, man. And it was like, that makes absolutely no sense. And they, and they still, there are still people that are not releasing this. So there's this growing movement now that argues we've put too much power in the hands of public health officials. It's the doubters that are saying, you know, more people die of the flu. And I mean, there's a whole bunch of these arguments to get the economy started. But I think the 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 lies that the public health officials have told have only bolstered the the doubters because they have real evidence that we have been given mistruths. Anybody want to argue with me that that what the public health officials have done with masks and with with bogus math like this has hurt their credibility? This is Jane Cahoon. I would just like to say that maybe we should have President Trump making all these decisions at the local <laughs> level since he has the absolute power. You know? Oh, wait a minute. He's not exactly an advocate for uh, public information. Okay. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't. I think that we haven't seen the spike in cases in Ohio, which makes it easier for the doubters to have an argument. 
but no, no, nothing that the public health officials have told us that changes is really helping the argument that they know what's best and we should we shouldn't question them. Well, and that's sad because I I think there's a lot of evidence that the lower number of cases is the direct result of the steps public health officials got us to take. Because if yes. you look at New York and, and Emily Bamforth in Michigan, where things are much worse, but because of the mask thing and because of, of a couple others, people now look to those numbers and say, you, you made those up too. And it's a shame. Part of the problem too was that the projections that they made about how bad it was, they never shared the underlying math on it. And as we all know, the University of Washington, which did show its work and has proven to be much more accurate, uh, had much lower numbers. Anyway, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. We're out once again. Fun conversation today. Anything we missed? Uh, yeah, this is Jane Cahoon. Um, we failed to mention that the protesters came back to the state house again Monday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and did you see the photo where they're yeah. all squashed up against the window? But I was going to say, you just stepped on me, oh, Chris. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. No, I was just going to say, like, they all clustered really close to one another, and they were, like, rattling the windows and, and shouting, and um, there was no social distancing whatsoever. This, they, this is Laura Johnston. I wonder, are they going to come back every day? I think they said they're not coming back until May 1st uh, when oh. the next the current stay-at-home order expires. You know, the first time they showed up, people pointed out that they largely adhered to the social distancing rules. Were they making a statement, do you think, yesterday by getting all squashed up next to each other and having no social distancing to, to basically say they're not buying it? I hadn't thought about that, but you, you're probably right about that. They probably were trying to make a point there. Can can we identify them and find out in like four days if they all have a really dry <laughs> cough and a high fever? One of one of them is a uh, a candidate for state senate, I believe. So you know, maybe we'll have to check. Oh, great. Okay, well, thanks Emily for jumping in at the last minute. Thanks to our regulars Jane and Laura, and thank you for listening to our podcast this week. And the CLE will return on Wednesday.